Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. I am Sean Richards, joined here today by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you want to know the proper spelling of that, our social media and streaming services are, of course, on our website, Calvary Christian Fellowship. Com. If you click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to a page where we are streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday. And there at the bottom of the screen, we'll have the email address spelled out for you, as well as if you're joining us live on the right-hand side of the screen, a comment section for you to engage with. The same routine is true for Facebook and YouTube. However, we've had trouble keeping ourselves consistently on those platforms. They don't always like what we have to say. But if you still want to join us there, roll the dice if you will, you can still join us on YouTube at A Reason for Hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like or subscribe, the benefit is you'll be notified when we are going live on the respective platforms, but if you can just note in your calendar, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. every single weekday, our website will definitely be the most reliable source of input. Also note, if any technical difficulties take place, Reach Radio, of course, will not have that issue or any of our radio affiliates, but if we are, for whatever reason, knocked off of the air, we have had some interesting weather encounters here in the desert. We call it the monsoon season, where a series of severe thunderstorms tends to come through for the next oh, two or three months or so. Peter feels horrible, but the plants feel happy. And of course, sometimes the power gets knocked out. But if we're ever taken down during the live stream, we will upload it at 6 o'clock p.m. after the broadcast is completed. That's what we have this backup information for. All that being said, though, note the standard for our questions are sincere Bible ones. So if you have a question, feel free to phrase it as such. If it is sincere, hopefully you'll stick around for the answer. And of course, if it's relevant to the Bible, we will address it. So with all that being said, and before we get into our starter topic for the day, uh, why don't you start us off, Peter, in a word of prayer? Sounds good. Father, we thank you so much for all the amazing work that you're doing in our lives as well as the world. Uh, We do pray and we ask that we would be continually more submissive to your sovereignty, and I ask that right now we'd be able to focus in on your word and your truth. Allow us to speak in a way that honors your truth, Lord, and that those listening would be able to understand your word a little bit more clearly as a result, and to be able to draw into a closer relationship with you and defend their faith a little bit better. We're thankful for you, God, in your name. Amen. That is true. Now, When it comes to the statement, mere Christianity, it's obviously most commonly coined by a novel C.S. Lewis wrote, summarizing the fundamentals of Christianity. But when it comes to what that statement means, a lot of people underestimate it, and a lot of people outside of the Christian faith overestimate the minor differences between the denominations, meaning those specific Christian groups that would emphasize secondary issues. So 
when the topic of mere Christianity comes up, A, what do we mean by that, and what is the benefit of getting back to essentials? Uh, yeah, no. So this is the book. Uh, those of you guys who are watching, you can see it. It's uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Christianity. It was adapted from various broadcasts that he did during World War II. So really interesting that uh, while you had Nazi planes flying over Britain dropping bombs, C.S. Lewis was in a radio studio delivering this incredibly articulate uh, essay distilled down into a narrative format. Uh, really, really amazing work. Uh, very concise, very short. Wouldn't take you long to get through it, but a lot of uh, a very beautiful truths distilled for us in a really handy manner. Now, his, his intention in doing this, because it, those of you guys who don't know much about C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis was not a theologian. He was not a priest. He was not a pastor. Uh, he was not some exegete. He wasn't someone who spent a lot of time trying to exegete the scriptures through sound hermeneutics or anything like that. C.S. Lewis was a philosopher, first and foremost, and he was a educator. He was a professor at Oxford and very, very bright guy, uh, spent a lot of time in medieval literature. That was his forte. Ended up converted to Christianity later in life. I think he was in his 30s when he finally converted through due to no small part with his friendship through J.R.R. Tolkien. But because of that, because of coming into Christianity later in life and having a friend who was a Roman Catholic, which is what Tolkien was, C.S. Lewis really had to wrestle with this question of denominational differences. What were they? Where did they come from? Why do they exist? And are they important? And as he was kind of going through these various iterations of Christianity, what he started to realize is there's a lot more that we have in common than what we have in difference with one another. And so what he tried to do with mere Christianity and why he entitled it that was he was looking at the world. And if you look at C.S. Lewis's writings, his great fear actually came from postmodernism and subjective reasoning. He was really, really afraid of what that would do to the world. He was terrified about what it was doing to uh, Russia at the time under Stalin, and he really believed that it would start to permeate the globe. So in response to that fear, he was like, let's stop arguing and bickering as Christians about these more petty details and focus on what makes us unified as Christians so that we can then go about attacking this very common and very deadly threat that we see expounding upon the globe. Now, he gave this talk at a really important time in human history, because this was, when you go through the 1900s, what you realize is that globalism started becoming a very important thing in most people's minds. You know, we had our first two world wars during the 1900s. People were thinking in a more global context. The things that were happening in Russia suddenly mattered to people in America that never really happened before. Uh, the things happening in Germany mattered to people in England. And that kind of globalism, that kind of understanding of the smallness of the world, it really elevated people's minds and it brought them out of what you would call national tribalism. So up until that point, people have always throughout human history just been very tribalistic. They just think about this is me, this is my family, this is my nation, this is my people. Everybody else is excluded from that category. And I'm going to think about me and mine and not really worry about anyone else. That has been the traditional view of mankind throughout world history. Globalism is this idea of no, the things that are happening in my family are, are the most important, but the things happening around the globe are still important, and I should care about them because they are going to affect me down the road. And again, the world wars showed us this, as well as the cold wars. They showed us this. We cannot just look at these countries as being on the fringe. We have to get involved in them in some small way, some 
positive things came out of that ideology and some very negative things came out of that ideology, which I'm not going to get into right now. But one of the positives is that people in the church started to see the variations within denominations as being a positive thing as opposed to a negative thing. So back in the day, when you would have denominational shifts, what you would have is you would have these churches trying to establish their traditions that they had developed through their various cultures, and they tried to essentially enforce those traditions onto everybody else. So they would send out their missionaries to other parts of the world, and they would say, hey, it's not just that you have to believe in these doctrinal statements, you also have to adapt our version of worship that we have gotten from the ages, and you must believe these things and do these things in this particular way, right? So if you look at these Catholic apologists that would go around the world and evangelists that would go around the world, they weren't like, hey, we're just going to preach you the gospel and the rest is on you. It was, no, no, we're going to preach you the gospel. We're going to set up very particular cathedrals. We're going to teach you our catechisms, and you're going to adopt our way of thinking and our way of behaving because they had a very imperialistic mindset. Now, because of that, if you went into a church and you saw what we would consider today minor differences that's a big deal because these various church denominations, whether they be Roman Catholic or whether they be Eastern Orthodox, they started to believe very firmly our traditions aren't just things that we've arbitrarily created. These are things that have been given to us by the apostles themselves. We sit on the seat of the apostles. Our traditions are doctrinal. They are binding. They are just as binding as the scriptures. You cannot take or leave them. You have to believe them in their totality, or you are not a member of our tribe. You're not a part of us. Now, lest you think, oh, well, thank God for the Reformation, because that did away with all that nonsense. No, it did not, right? If you study the Reformation, it was bloody, not just from what the Catholics did to the Reformers, but also to what the Reformers did to one another. This tribalistic mindset, this imperialistic mindset, is something that just permeates mankind. We cannot say this is my cultural understanding of this, and it may differ from yours, and that's okay. We have to say, no, 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 what you believe is a heresy, and I have to kill you as a result, right? I have to kill you and your family, and I have to make sure you don't teach this to anyone else. That's very negative. Where is that? Right. And uh, where we could say that's not in the Bible, that scripture's not in the Bible, but we do see people in the Bible acting this way, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't want to believe like, oh, the early church, they had it all together. No, they were ready to come to blows quite a few times in the early church. Uh, can you think of some times where that might have happened, Sean? Well, not necessarily according to blows, but when it came to the basically first major misunderstanding in the church, the first false teaching that was known as the Galatian heresy, uh, the Galatian book that was written by Paul the Apostle addresses this, but essentially the first council, the gathering in Jerusalem, was addressing this topic as an issue that people were literally starting riots over. Uh, of course, when Paul the Apostle was falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple, it wasn't because necessarily he was violating Jewish law, they just didn't like him and needed an excuse. But that being said, the cause of this sort of animus and hostility towards Paul was the mindset that if you were to worship the Jewish Messiah, you had to become Jewish. And the Apostle Peter, John, James, and everyone else were going, um, I appreciate the cultural patriotism, but 
uh, God kind of did something through me recently that I didn't like, but regardless of my, and there's no way of excusing this racism, um, the Holy Spirit's not picking and choosing nations anymore, and now that I think about it, this was prophesied in the Old Testament. So what do we do now? And James, as the leader of the early church at that time, was going, well, Obviously, there's going to be things that we want to avoid stumbling blocks with, avoid food strangled, sexual morality, and food offered to idols. If you abstain from these, you do well. That was the conclusion. But the heresy centered around the idea that unless you were circumcised, which for those of you listening, not to be crass, but a uh, dedication of your body the way ancient priests would be by the cutting away of a particular part of the male sex organ would be how that was demonstrated. The Jewish nation set themselves uniquely apart from anyone else. The uh, Arabs also adopted this later on. But the Jews would mark themselves out as a kingdom of priests by obeying this custom universally, rather than just from the priesthood. So all of these ideas, all of these confusions and conflicts, making culture a, I guess, authority over the Bible, but don't point that out to us because we'll deny it, that was essentially how every misunderstanding was started, especially the first one. So when we're talking about the book of Galatians, that's why Paul's language is so borderline caustic, because it wasn't the gospel. It wasn't the Bible. It wasn't mere Christianity. They were teaching something that didn't come from God, that wasn't going to get them closer to God, and that he quite vitriolically said, hey, if they think that cutting away parts of their body is going to get them to heaven. I wish they'd just cut the whole thing off, if that is their mindset. But of course... What is mere Christianity? What are the tenets that we would say is the core of Christianity in which we cannot have disagreement and rightfully call ourselves brothers in Christ? Yeah, the truth matters, and a fake Jesus isn't going to save you. So when we talk to people about the non-negotiables, that essentially is what we mean by mere Christianity, that our source of truth, where we get not speculation about God, not cultural imposition about God, but revelation from God about what he is and what he isn't, we first recognize the Bible is our authority. The 66 books... 39 for the old, 27 for the new, that are verified, tested according to the standard of Old Testament prophets, including the New Testament, by the way, verified by apostles or a direct associate of an apostle, accurate in the historical information they provide, verified by public miracles, and, of course, consistent in the way they portray God. We do not recognize the Apocrypha. If you have questions about that, feel free to ask in the comments. But it's noting those points. Our source of truth, first and foremost, needs to be in the Bible. If you've read Tobit or Judith or any of these other books, uh, good on ya. I'm uh, currently reading uh, some science fiction novels about Star Wars, but it's not informing And maybe next week knowledge. we could go over Sola Scriptura yeah. and, and talk about that and how it works. But when you talk to a Roman Catholic, they would affirm these scriptures. Now note, you can challenge some of the outright heretical statements, for example, made in for a first through fifth Enoch. But the point being made is that, that our source of truth starts and ends with the Bible. That if there's an agreement or a disagreement about who God is and what he's like, that needs to be where we get it from. That's our authority. The second is, of course, just as important as we read in Scripture that God is a trinity, that he is one in being, three in person, that those unique persons all share the unique attributes of what God is and isn't. And of course, 
that is something we recognize in Scripture as well. For those of you who are worried, like, oh no, I'm still trying to figure out the Trinity, doesn't mean you're not saved. The difference is if you proactively deny these doctrines. The third is, of course, that the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, came to this world in the person of Jesus Christ, and he verified that through a historical death and resurrection by Roman crucifixion, no less, and of course, having three days later prophesied it, rose from the dead for our ransom. That is a fundamental truth of Christianity. And then, ultimately, the reason why we believe those things is because of its result, that our salvation, our ransom from the punishment due to sin, all of us, physical and spiritual death, has been ultimately redeemed, that we've been purchased back to God through Jesus' death, and because of his resurrection, we are now worthy of heaven, not because of the works we do, but because of the grace he's shown. If we can agree on all of those things, the Protestants had summaries for them, but even Roman Catholics and Orthodox can affirm these things as well. Belief in the Bible as our sole authority, belief in the Trinity, belief in Jesus as God and his death and resurrection as verifying that, and salvation by grace through faith, period. Anything more or anything less is a cult. It is denying the fundamental truths of mere Christianity, and we would recognize it as either affirming the worship of a fake Jesus or making claims about God that diminish the reality of what Christianity claims. Yeah, absolutely. You know, well said. So, uh, like I said, maybe in the next coming weeks we could go over some of these solas. These are the onlys of the Protestant Reformation and talk about what they were, how they contradicted the Roman Catholic Church at the time, and how various, as Sean put it, various of these more traditional denominations have actually come around to some of these sola doctrines, which is very interesting. So you have Orthodox and Roman Catholics who can agree with us on these things. That, by the way, never happened in world history, right? This is a very new phenomenon that's going on. So like I said, up until the mere Christianity movement, what you had is you had Christians drawing as tight a sphere as they could around their particular doctrines and excluding all other believers and denominations across the world. What we're trying to do through the mere Christianity movement is say, how wide can we make Christianity while still maintaining logical borders? Right, So we do want to have very fixed borders so that we're not all of a sudden including every religion under the sun and saying, well, yeah, Muslims are basically Christians because they believe in one God. and you know, But we're saying, like, no, 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 there's a very specific, there's a very doctrinal understanding of God, understanding of Christianity that is very clear and definitive, and it does exclude some people, but we want to include as many people as possible within that sphere as we can, right, without compromising what we believe. So very, very important. So some people in the mere Christianity movement have gone a little too far, and they're like, well, you, you know, you believe in God, that's okay. You know, like, no, there's there's very specifics that you have to believe about God, things that you have to believe about God. And uh, same with salvation. They've become really loosey-goosey on the idea of salvation in the mere Christianity movement over the years. Now, this is very important to me and Sean because we're part of the Calvary movement. The Calvary movement was actually born out of the mere Christianity movement. Would Chuck Smith see it that way? Probably not, but he definitely was influenced by this ideology. So after C.S. Lewis uh, released this book, non-denominational Christianity began to really be on an uptick because people started to realize, whoa, whoa, if it's mainly about what we agree about and not what we disagree about, why call ourselves under, put ourselves under any denomination? Why not just focus on mere Christianity and call it that? Like, why do we have to have any denominational structure? So this is what uh, Chuck Smith decided to do. I'm going to, uh, he was originally part of the Baptist denomination, correct? 
I will, cl the elder can clarify in the comments. I believe it was some form of Presbyterian. Okay, cool. So he was originally under a denomination, and then uh, Scott will let us know what which one that was. But and then he went out from under it, and he began his own home Bible study, which eventually culminated in the Calvary movement. And the Calvary movement was very much a mere Christianity movement. Chuck Smith is one of the first preachers, to my knowledge, to openly go out and say, if you want to go to another church that's more traditional and denominational, go for it, right? If you want to go to a church that's more charismatic, go for it, right? It's mainly about what we agree upon as Christians that matters, not on these side issues. And he was very clear about that, very definitive about that, and very good about that. And I believe that's one of the reasons why a lot of people resonated with the message that he was teaching. Uh, there was an absence of this petty jealousy and the squabbling that had really, unfortunately, characterized Christianity for many centuries. And when I say Christianity, I mean just people in general, and <laughs> unfortunately, Christians are people. So that's what he moved away from. So let me pull out some negatives that can come away from mere Christianity for a second, and then I will also reiterate the idea that just because someone calls themselves a Christian does not mean they fit into that framework we were just talking about. Uh, and me and Sean have talked about Roman Catholicism in the past. We have talked about the ideals surrounding transubstantiation and the real presence of Christ and how that can, not necessarily does, but how that can conflict with our understanding of the gospel by grace through faith alone. Uh, it can also conflict with various other things, like he talked about, uh, depending on how sacred someone holds the apocryphal books, right? They, they can come away with some heretical, some just weird doctrines, yeah. I would put it that way. <laughs> this is a, a diplomatic way to put it. But at any rate, what are some of the negatives that can come from mere Christianity? This is something that I am predicting, so I could be totally wrong. I am not claiming prophethood right now. I believe that there is going to be a movement, Foursquare. Okay, Foursquare. so yeah, so Chuck Smith was originally a part of the Foursquare denomination. Uh, but anyway, I am predicting that there is going to be a movement away from non-denominational churches into more traditional church denominations. The, the reason why is because I believe that in our age where institutions are really crumbling around and people are kind of searching for something solid to put their faith in. I think people are looking for something that his, has historical traditional backing behind it. Now, one of the issues with mere Christianity, and again, I've, I've spoken about this on the year before, is that it can disconnect people from the entire past of the Christian church. So again, we are not Catholics, we are not Eastern Orthodox, we don't have to justify the past of Christians. In fact, I am more than happy to call out the evils that have been and atrocities that have been propagated by people claiming the name of Christ. Now, some of them were still good men, although lived in corrupt cultures and per per perpetuated evils that were a part of their culture. However, they were still good men, and we stood, should still listen to the wisdom that they give to us. Now, a lot of these uh, people throughout the church age, you have to realize the Bible is God's word. By that, it is very, very complicated. There is a reason why Christians have argued over the minutiae of the scriptures for thousands of years. Have Christians ever argued relatively? I mean, have they ever really argued about the four non-negotiables that Sean has offered? No. There has been widespread agreement throughout the ages, and when there was disagreement, they were heretics and they were thrown out, right? So it was, it was made very, very clear that they weren't. So at any rate, 
when we're looking at Christians in the modern day to throw out all of the traditions of the past, to throw out all of the church fathers, these are the church leaders who have lived for the last 2,000 years and say, ah, they have nothing to teach us today. What do they know? They lived way back in the day. That's progressivism. That's something that has permeated Western society. It's really a negative way of looking at things. They have a lot to teach us today. They got a lot right. They got a lot wrong, but all of their wisdom is beneficial to us. As Paul says to the Corinthians, all are yours, right? So they're like, no, 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 we have to choose either Apollos or Paul or Peter. We have to choose one of these great teachers. And Paul's like, no, we all belong to you, right? Everything is Christ. So if you're getting something out of Paul, read Paul. If you're getting something out of Apollos, read Apollos. Listen to Apollos. That's okay. We're all of Christ. And as long as we're not teaching something heretical, listen to what is going on around you. So we need to be careful as modern evangelicals to not throw away the traditions of the past and look at them with contempt and say, like, well, these guys lived a thousand years ago. They're stupid. They're ignorant. Uh, we know better today. Thank God. And even be as foolish as some Christians say today, like, well, I just read the Bible and I have no tradition backing up my understanding of it. Uh, yes, you do. You have, you have some sort of a way, you have some sort of a lens that you are looking at the Bible through. And if you don't know what those lenses are, you're actually most controlled by them, right? It's important to understand what are the denominational lenses I'm looking at the scriptures from, why do I believe it is saying this as opposed to that, and to be able to reason within yourself, look at the arguments from the past and be able to make a good argumentation moving forward. So I really do believe people are going to search out. I think they're going to seek out these more traditional denominations. I think it's going to make them feel a little bit more whole, a little bit more complete, a little bit more connected with their past. I think that globalism is going away. I think people are going back to nationalism. I think that's what we've seen in the last couple of years. That's also going to definitely make this problem that I'm talking about worse. And I just pray and I hope that people stick to the heart of mere Christianity. If you want to go to a traditional denomination, go for it. But don't lose the heart of what C.S. Lewis was trying to do, because it is important. And I'm saying C.S. Lewis because he's the one that coined the phrase, but this is what we see in the New Testament. Whenever we see sectarianism pop up in the New Testament, there's always a bid for peace among the apostles and even among Jesus, right? Remember that the apostles were the ones who were like, those guys aren't of us. They're casting out demons in your name, but they're not a part of us. We should condemn them. And Jesus is like, uh, hold your horses. They're condemning it, the demons in our name, in my name. They're on our side. They're not against us. They are for us. Let's just preserve peace in the body. So again, if you feel called to a more traditional denomination, go for it. Me and Sean, over the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about some of the, the solas from the Reformation, uh, some of the doctrinal statements from the Reformation, and we'll help you at least see or navigate these more traditional denominations a little bit better. What is good about them, what is bad about them, and so forth. Anything you'd like to add to that before we close on this topic? If you are considering a denomination, remember Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, <laughs> the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ, not and the uh, others, not Christian. Not okay. So, <laughs> with that said, uh, let us know if that's helpful. And going out to our questions now, this first question, uh, this one's a little close to home. I'll pass it over to you, Peter. Uh, Nina wants to know, is it selfish for her and her husband to not want more children in these last days as the world is getting worse and worse? Uh, I guess the mindset is, why have children if it seems like the world's just going to continue to go downhill? Yeah, no, very good question. And I would say it's not in, 
inherently selfish and you really need to check your heart and check what your thought process is. So what would be the bad version of this mindset? Right. So let let me give you the bad version. Number one, and I've actually been talking to my buddy about this for the last couple of weeks because him and his wife are young and they're getting married. I mean, his, his fiance, sorry, they're young and they're getting married and they're saying, we don't want kids ever. And I caution them about this because number one, you might be listening to the doctrines and the dictates of this world. You know, in recent years, there have been several films released about the dangers of overpopulation. Uh, You know, one would be Avengers Endgame, another one would be uh, Kingsman and Secret Service, but there have been various other ones that have warned about the dangers of overpopulation. And if you notice, when you watch those movies, they never actually condemn the ideology, they just condemn the conclusion, right? So we should, there is a fear, a Malthusian, right? He's the guy who really coined this idea, Malthus, Malthusian idea that we're going to run out of resources, there's going to be an overpopulation problem, so we should cull the population, right? They never actually condemn the ideology of the eco-terrorist. They're just like, well, it's just wrong to kill people, right? So we shouldn't kill people, but yeah, we are still heading for this uh, cliff that we can't get away from. So be very, very careful. This idea of overpopulation has really permeated the culture and society to the extent that some Christians, even though they deny the conclusions, might accept the premise at some level that there is a problem with people, that there is a problem with overpopulation. We just need to kind of focus on ours and those around us. That's not true. Uh, In fact, in the 80s, two economists made a very famous bet for, I think it was $4 million or something like that. But It wasn't like trading places. Yeah. (laughs) But essentially what they said is one guy was saying, no, Malthus is correct. There will be a Malthusian catastrophe. We will run out of resources. The earth is going to die in the next 20 years. Again, this is the 80s, so... Spoiler alert, you know who won now. Uh, But the other guy said, pick any four commodities on this earth, and I will bet you that those things will be more available. While the population will increase, those things will be more available than they are today. So he picked four. I think one was food. The other was gas. The other one was something like, uh, you know, water or crops or something like that. But they picked four. And those four, the guy was right, right? So he, he was right. They all increased. So even though the population exponentially increased, actually more than that guy thought, all of those resources increased at a much higher exponential rate. So be very, very careful when people tell you there's an overpopulation problem. It is not true. There is not an overpopulation problem. We actually have kind of an underpopulation problem, especially in the West, right? We are way below replacement rates for birth and things like that. Now, if that's not problematic for you, you might have you might have a selfish ideology here. So having kids is a sacrifice. Don't let anyone tell you differently. I have one child now and I have another on the way. They are a huge sacrifice. They are a monetary sacrifice. They are a time sacrifice. They are a sacrifice in every sense of the word. The negativity that's come from our culture is the belief that you do not have to sacrifice in order to be happy. Ever since the Old Testament, ever since Cain and Abel, we have this principle from God that unity with God and unity with our neighbor comes through a sacrificial mindset. It comes through the idea that my life is not about me, but it is about others. People who live their lives in an others-oriented manner in which self-sacrifice dictates their actions and behavior are way happier than people who live to gratify their own ends, right? People who live in a very selfish manner who says, I don't want to sacrifice, I don't want to have the monetary burden, I don't want to have the burden of having to 
uh, give up my time and my resources for my child, maybe give up certain career opportunities, maybe give up certain time that I'm enjoying with my spouse, right? That ideology will lead you to very unhappy circumstances. Now, it doesn't mean you got to have 10 or 15 kids. You have to be wise about how these things are going to go. I'm not against contraception. I am not against the idea of limiting your family to a relatively uh, sane amount. However, that word sane even gets thrown around a little bit where people like it's it's uh, irresponsible to have more than a couple kids unless you make like $80,000 a year or something like that. Uh, no, it's not. You can make it work on a fixed budget. You might have to tighten your belt a little bit, but that's okay. But honestly, talk to your partner and honestly always seek to say, do we want more kids? Is God opening us up to adoption maybe? Is God opening us up to having more kids and to providing for this world? Because here's the thing. If Christians aren't reproducing and atheists aren't reproducing, the dictates of our culture are going to go to the people who are reproducing. And who is reproducing in our culture right now? Muslim totalitarians, generally agnostics, or the spiritists, the people who view spirituality as the sort of vague and indefined concept, uh, the uh, the new Rosh Nish <laughs> crowd, I suppose, the hippie generation. Those are generally the ones that are uh, forming the idiocracy, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And you're going to see the demographics in America and the West change drastically. If you want to know how drastically, just look at England, right? <laughs> and you'll get a good idea of how drastically this thing can get. But that's what's happening because we are not reproducing at a particular rate. Immigration and the immigrants who are coming into our country and are reproducing, they are going to be progressively taking over the culture. As Christians, we need to understand there is a responsibility that we have to propagate our ideas, not just through evangelism, but also through, yes, raising and rearing children within the church, right? That's a very, very important facet of the church. We're supposed to be doing it. Now, can you have a positive view on this? Now, there are people in the Bible that do not have kids, and they don't want kids. Now, the reason why is because they feel as though— uh, sometimes when I say feel, I mean God literally tells them this. Uh, they feel as though they want to spend their time sacrificing, not for kids that they bear through their own bodies and their own union, but sacrificing for the church as a whole, right? So these would be evangelists, these would be guys like Jeremiah, who stayed in Israel defending the faith in the true and living God against the incredible heresies that were sprouting up during his day and the Babylonian incursion <laughs> to Israel, right? So you have people that were in circumstances in which kids were just not a very viable option, and so they decided to dedicate their lives to the church. If that's your heart, you and your husband are saying, man, it's a really crazy world. We want to dedicate ourselves to the ministry. Man, we, we want to dedicate ourselves to our home church. We want to dedicate ourselves to becoming evangelists or something like that. More power to you. Go for it. I think that that's an amazing vocation. I think that's an incredible heart. But if your idea is, well, there's quite a bit of a sacrifice and a burden in having kids, or the world's gone crazy, so I'm not going to have more kids— that's a really weird mentality to have, right? The, the idea is that life is valuable, life is important, and the ideology of Christianity is still very pertinent to our world, and therefore procreation, especially in the church, should be a priority. Um, I do love, by the way, one of my favorite movies that have come out in the last 10 years is A Quiet Place. I think it's one of the only good the first horror one. movies, right? Yeah, the first one. I actually did like the second one, too. But anyway, it's one of the, fir the only good horror movies that have probably come out in like... 
a hundred years or something like that. It's, it's, it's really, it stands apart as being a really good horror movie. But one of the things that happens in the movie is even though there is these monsters that roam around and prevent people from talking or else they'll kill you. And the world population has been cut to almost nothing. The couple in the movie decide to have a baby and they have to make a lot of allocations to have this baby in this crazy world. Now, a lot of people getting out of the movie said, these people are stupid. The protagonists are dumb. You know, why would they have a baby in this really crazy world where monsters are eating uh, their kids and stuff like that? They, this was really irresponsible. These people are dumb. No, they're not dumb. They realize that there is a difference between looking at the world, throwing up your hands in a nihilistic kind of fatalistic perspective and saying, well, the world's gone to crap, you know, so I guess I'm just going to kind of buckle in and try to die happy, I guess, as happy as I can be, or to say, no, life is worthy. It's a beautiful thing that God has given us no matter the circumstances. And you know what? I don't want to just survive until I die. I want to make my life matter. And part of, again, a big part of the human experience is the propagation of life, and it is the raising of children. And again, for people who do not undertake that journey, you need to supplement that somehow. You need to supplement that with dedication to the church community or something like that. Otherwise, you're going to end up incredibly lonely. I've spoken to many people who have made the decision to not have kids throughout the course of their life, and there is a loneliness and a lack that they feel and experience because they didn't use that time wisely. They were given extra time because of that decision, but they used it to gratify their own interests and not to serve others. So be careful with that. Yeah. So when it comes down to it, the in summary, the negatives would be, what if? Right. And we can't know the if. We can only know the now. If we look at the positives, it is, is God calling me to something else? Not the negative, something else. If I'm I being, if this is the conversation you're having with you and your husband, Nina, am I being proactive in pursuing something for the ministry? If not, then I'd just leave that open. Make sure that God is going to, of course, call you to future kids. That will be the first stat, but also note as well, be careful in the reasons we oftentimes give ourselves, because more often than not, they're just excuses. Let us know if that's clear. Um, we received a question yesterday we didn't have time to get to. This is uh, from Isaiah, kind of straightforward. Uh, this is concerning the scripture mentioning uh, the days of Noah. This is in Luke chapter 9, I believe. But does the days of Noah, in reference to leading up to the tribulation, indicate how many survivors of the tribulation will repopulate the world? Is it eight or a million? And also, are the plagues of Egypt foreshadowing the plagues of the tribulation? Well, let's start with the first one. The short answer is no, and I'll expand on that a little bit. In Luke chapter 9, uh, or is it 16, the conversation that Jesus was having concerning the last days, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. Um, the interesting aspect of this is, again, we're only given examples of what's leading up to the tribulation, not the events that are going afterwards. If I read too much into this, then I could end up basically taking this farther than what's justified. I'll verify this in a moment, but Isaiah, this would basically be the crux of the issue. If the passage goes on to give examples, like in the days of Noah, there were eight people preserved when the rains came, then the floods, and took them all away, he goes on to make another example regarding what? 
Sodom and Gomorrah, that Lot was delivered. So then is that telling us that only three people will survive the tribulation? Luke 1736. Okay, I had the book right, so I'll get uh, <laughs> some credit for that. Let me read the passage that'll make this clarified as clearly as mud. Um, this is verse 26. As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the Son of Man. So what does that mean? Verse 27, they ate they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So notice the point of emphasis isn't on the survivors, it's on those who ignored the warning. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So Three points are made in emphasis, repeating the same emphasis that he's trying to get you to take away. It's just like with Lot, the people who rejected the warning were destroyed. Just like with Noah, the people who rejected the warning were destroyed. So it will be in the days of the Son of Man. No mention of the survivors, no mention of the numbers, no mention of anything apart from those who rejected the mercy. So just note that within the text, not expanding upon side details and all these other, you know, string-drawn conspiracy theories in your basement or whatever. That would be, I think, the most appropriate handling of the passage. And then in short, of course, are the plagues foreshadowing the tribulation? Depends in what sense. Obviously, there won't be a plague of fleas. Uh, there won't be, uh, you know, cattle and livestock dying from disease and so forth, unless you really broaden out the impact of the fourth seal judgment. But what I do think, and this is a reasonable approach in Scripture, not preterist view, of course, uh, when people are looking at the end times, they would either say, are these symbolic or are these literal? And the reason I would say literal is because you would also have to apply that same logic to the plagues of Exodus. Was the wrath of God demonstrated on Egypt for the oppression of his people and the abuse of his land because of this symbolic displeasure of circumstances that took place in their lives, allegorizing poor political management and so forth. No, it was literal intervention from God. And so if you're going to take that reading process, that approach towards Scripture of God being capable of, and actually have done, raining down fire on the earth, hailstones that would kill everyone who didn't seek shelter and ignore the warnings, the differentiation between the people of God and the people who rejected God, and the plagues affecting them and not others. Obviously, the plagues won't be copy and paste into the tribulation. Some will. Rain, fire, for example, the hailstones and the darkness, but others won't, and that's what we need to be careful with. And saying the ten plagues of Egypt will happen again in the future, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that God's going to judge the earth again? Physically? Visibly? through his, Because of his wrath? Absolutely. Do you mean that it's going to start like the Prince of Egypt with the frogs coming out of the Nile? No, that, that's not going to happen. We do know the two prophets will specifically use the ten plagues. <laughs> yeah, they'll have a little fun with that, I'd imagine, but we need to specify that as our interpretation method. If God did this before, then the passages that emphasize the same type of judgment, the same kind of motivation, and the same or a different scale of impact, we'd say that they were literal. That would be our answer. Anything more? Uh, no, uh, real follow, real quick follow-up to Nina's question. So she, she asked about gas prices going up and things getting a lot worse and things like that. There's also a misunderstanding in the West about where happiness comes from. 
uh, people in the West tend to think that prosperity is where happiness comes from. And you hear this type of rhetoric a lot, especially when it comes to the abortion issue. Well, you know, if we take away abortion, then people in low income families will have to have their kids and you're subjecting them to a really terrible life and poverty and things like that. Uh, we, we tend to think that happiness comes from prosperity. Well, if that's the case, we should be the happiest country on the planet. Are we? Right. Suicide rates in the U.S. as well as Europe in general are far higher, far higher than any of these more tribalistic and indigenous cultures. Uh, I would encourage you to read this book. Really fantastic. Not written by a Christian, by the way. Uh, Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging by Sebastian Younger, uh, where he goes to a lot of these indigenous tribes throughout the world and finds that they are far happier, far less prone to depression, anxiety and suicide than the West, and they have far less resources because they have figured out, right, they know intrinsically what makes people happy as not necessarily prosperity, but it is human connection and deep and personal community. And it's it's really important that that's what's been lost in the West. The reason why people are so unhappy in the West is not that we don't have enough resources. We have enough resources in the West that even people who are homeless in the West live more wealthy than some of the middle class in various other countries in the world, or even some of the upper class in some other countries in the world. So prosperity is not something that is going to make you happy. And having kids, and like I said, being in a more difficult situation when it comes to money is not necessarily going to mean you're going to live a miserable life. Uh, if you have the outlook, you will. But if you have a perspective of life is more than resources and money, life is about connection and human community, then you will be happy no matter what circumstance you're in, especially when you put God at the center of that. All right. Question from Mac, who wants to know, when you repent of sin, is it the sin that has a hold on you, or is it all sins? Well, I think what will clarify is, what is repentance, especially unto salvation? Uh, yeah, very good question, Mac. And actually, we're going over that tonight in the group. So, sure. <laughs> uh, Yeah, so repentance is a Greek word. It is the word metanoia. Obviously, there's a Hebrew version of that. I don't know it off the top of my head. But uh, metanoia, and it, essentially at the core, it just means a change of mind, right? It means you've had a change of mind about something. We have to remember that repentance today is only used in theological contexts. The word metanoia was a very secular word at the times that the apostles were writing in the New Testament. This is a word that everyone would have been familiar with. They would have understood it. It's used frequently throughout Greek literature, right? It's just something that people knew what it was. All it meant, as I said, is a change of mind. Now, because of that, there are various usages of it in the Old and the New Testament. For instance, there is a time where it talks about Jesus walking past his disciples when they're in the boat, right? You probably know the story, right? They're rowing their boat against the storm, not getting very far, and Jesus strolls by them. And the author says that it was appeared to them as though he was going to go beyond them, but he repented, right? That's the word that it uses in the Greek. He repented and came back. Now, did Jesus repent of sin? No. But he had, did he even change his mind? Not really, because, you know, he was always intending to do that. From their perspective, he changed his mind, though, because it seemed like he was going in one direction, and then he turned around and met them where they were at. And there's a reason for that that I'm not going to get into right now. But at any rate, it's just a secular word. It could mean a lot of different things. Now, when it comes to a Christian context, what we usually mean about it is there's a grand repentance that saves us. We change our mind about God, right? So at a certain point, you thought about something about God. I thought something about God. I thought that he didn't exist. You may have thought he didn't exist. Maybe you had a false view of him. Not really sure. Maybe you didn't know if you had a relationship with him. 
But there was a moment, right? It may have been a succession of moments or something like that, but there was a time in your life where you changed your mind about God. You changed your perspective about him, and you said, you know what? What Jesus says about life, salvation, and God, I believe are true. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he rose again, and I believe that if I don't put my faith in him, I will not be saved. I will not have a relationship with God. That change of mind saved you. Now, during the course of your Christian life, you're going to have many changes of mind when it comes to sinful behavior. You're going to have a change of mind about your sexual ethics. You're going to have a change of mind about your anger issues. You're going to have a change of mind about your selfishness, your pride, your lust, your envy, your corruption, your deception, right? There are going to be many times in your life where you're going to recognize a bad behavioral pattern, and you're going to say, I need to do something about this. I need to change my mind about this. Now, having a different mode of thought is not the completion of repentance. I encourage you to read 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, but it's beginning of it. Changing your mind about a topic is the beginning of setting your will against a behavior. And as you change your mind and as you set your will against behaviors, change in the body becomes more relevant. This means that repentance is an ongoing process. It's not something that's over like that. Um, hopefully, in your relationship with God, it was, right? I mean, you just believe that God was real and that that's it. But when it comes to behaviors, it's a little bit more difficult to just change behaviors on a whim. It takes a lot of time and a lot of focus. Yeah, there's a common saying, fish swim, birds fly, Christians repent. It's something you're doing all the time. But if we say the repentance unto salvation, understand it's not just the turning from sin, it's the turning to Christ resulting in salvation. If you say, oh no, have I repented of all known sin in my life, or what if the sin I didn't know? Not the point. It's the turning to Jesus that deals with the sin. Understand the object, not the uh, dismissed material. Second question from him was, someone told me that Jesus came to divide family and friends in Matthew 10, 34. Well, somebody uh, was telling you maybe a third of the truth, which is a whole lie. Let's start in verse 32, where the topic is addressed, and then note the concluding statement in verse 39. This is Matthew 10, 32. Therefore, in light of what he was just speaking of, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So what set the tone of this conversation? Your confession of Jesus being Christ. What will stand in the way of that? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace. Uh, excuse me, bring peace, but a sword. Uh Uh-oh, is he calling for jihad? Verse 35, for I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against their mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. This is, of course, quoting the Old Testament. But noting this point, he goes on to say, and he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Notice the tone of confession. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross, not his sword, a means of execution, his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Now here's the punchline. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life his life for my sake 
will find it. Now, there have been plenty of people who've read all sorts of things into this and say, see, Jesus is calling people to go on a violent revolution, that if they give their lives for his sake, then they will discover it, that it's better to lose your life than to preserve your life, so go out and get yourself killed. Well, A, that's not in the text. B, that was never applied by any Christians until about a thousand years later, and even then it's misrepresented in every movie ever. But the third point is, what brought up the conversation and how was it applied? What brought up the conversation was the confession of Jesus as the Christ. And if you look at parallel accounts, he goes into multiple details concerning this in Luke and in Mark, concerning those who would reject Jesus for the sake of their families, to preserve peace in their household. The whole book of Hebrews is written on people who would reject Christ in favor of Judaism to avoid persecution, to avoid being exiled from their homes. And people still do it today. So if we have an example of this in application within the Bible, we don't have to take the words of people outside of and in opposition to the Bible. Second problem, if your friend told you a third of a verse about 20% into a conversation that continues on to the rest of the chapter, I'd say they were being manipulative in the same way that when quotes are made by politicians and saying, oh, uh, don't bother the whole conversation or even the whole sentence. Look at this series of words put in this order that came from his mouth. Isn't he evil? That's misleading. That's deceptive. If on the other hand, we're going to ask, how is this applied? Well, we only see one instance of someone taking up the sword in Jesus' name, and he told him, put it away because I can defend myself, Peter, thank you very much, that's not going to fly. In fact, when we saw a town, for example, in the book of Acts, that rejected Paul and Barnabas' testimony, and they called back and said, hmm, what did Jesus tell us to do? To shake the dust off of our shoes. Well, that was code, right? Teresa Aslan said it in his book of uh, burning their houses to the ground and leaving nothing but the dust under their feet. Well, all well and good, the problem is that didn't happen. You can make assertions, but that's not fact. So here's the point. Read more than just a third of a verse in the middle of a conversation. Get the whole passage in noting. There's no mention of a sword in regards to anything apart from the division between someone's household. It requires a bit of context, but if he went on to clarify, if anyone who does not take up his sword and follow me, that would be a problem. But what does it say? take up his cross, following that example. The passage isn't talking about people uh, killing and being killed like uh, Islam. It's talking about those who would lay down their life like Jesus laid down his life, which we do see modeled in the original audience of Jesus' statement. I think they can be taken with their word for it since they could clarify with him on those things. Let us know if that's clear, Mac. Uh, another question, anything to add or clarify? Nah, uh, speaking of that, I think we might be able to finish with this, but we'll see. Uh, Yari wants to know if it's wrong to be a pacifist in regards to, of course, never taking up the sword. Yeah, no, I could totally see why certain Christians believe this way. There have been conscientious objectors throughout the ages, people who just will not fight even when they are drafted into war. So uh, there are various Christians who have believed this way, thought this way, and it makes sense, right? If you look at Jesus' statements in the New Testament, they seem to be pacifistic. Uh, if you are struck on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Uh, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, right? These all seem like incredibly pacifistic types of passages. Now, there is a very important distinction that we have to make in the scripture. So 
I don't think that pacifists are going to hell. I don't think that they have made some cardinal error. Those Christians who are pacifists and hold to it, I think that's great. I think that's awesome. I think they're mistaken, but I do, uh, I do have a lot of uh, respect for them and being able to make their arguments from the scriptures, to hold to it with conviction, and to maybe even incur consequences for thinking that way. However, you have to understand in the Bible, there is a distinction between what is right for the individual and what is right for a nation. So God has imbued power to the state, to the institutions of governments, in order to execute what we would call uh, crime and punishment, right? Very, various amounts of capital punishments, not just death penalties, but also incarcerations and things like that. That is a power that God has given to the state. He gave it originally to Noah after the flood. If man sheds man's blood, by man his blood must be shed. God is saying to man, you have the authority to execute punishment for crimes against humanity. That's very important. God has given that authority to us. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is given the capacity to punish crimes, sometimes with the death penalty. Now, that is okay for the state. It is not okay for the individual. Now, at the time that Jesus was speaking, Israel wasn't exactly a state. They kind of were, but they were subjugated by Rome and didn't really have many rights. In fact, they didn't have the right to execute prisoners. This is why the Jews that arrested Jesus had to go to the Romans. You think they wanted to go to Pontius Pilate? No, <laughs> their hands were tied. They had to go to Pontius Pilate. They had to get the Romans to execute Jesus because it wasn't in their purview to do so. So Jesus is talking to people that do not have a nation. He knows that the Christians are not going to hold any type of institutional power. And he says, therefore, as an individual, you do not have the right to raise up an army in your own power and to fight against the Romans. That's why he's teaching this non-confrontational, non-violent type form of religion. Now, for the individual, though, in the Old Testament, there are strong passages that would point to the right to self-defense, right? If something is happening to me or my family, I have the right to defend myself. And even Jesus said that if you have two tunics, sell one and get a sword. Now, he's not talking about a long sword. He's not talking about one to go to battle with. He is talking about a personal defensive dagger that would be used for cutting up meat as well as personal home defense, basically. But so, you don't even necessarily need to know the language or culture to conclude that because it was never applied in a violent way. That's right. So we do have a right as Christians to self-defense. Now, there's a lot of debate in Christianity about where that starts and where it begins. If you're under a really oppressive regime, do you have the right to stand up to it? Some Christians say yes. Some Christians say no. I think there's room for debate there, right? Yeah. So let us know if that's clear. Uh, we have about 20 seconds before the music starts, and I'd hate to have to rush a question like we did yesterday. For those of you listening, remind us there was an individual who was bringing up Unitarian arguments in John chapter 10. Uh, we were able to briefly go over them, but we want to give it more time. Feel free to remind us of that if we don't. Also, John has a question about John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 11. Kurt has a question about the book of Enoch as well as transubstantiation. So you can look forward to that next time, feel free to send that to us either by email or remembering to post it again in the comments. But as the music is sounding, we must depart. So thank you all for taking the time to listen to us on the broadcast today. Keep us in prayer. We'll be here at the same time tomorrow, Lord willing. Until then, God bless you. Be in the word of the Lord. May the word of the Lord be in you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry 
at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.